The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and I am part of the Lectures and Community Engagement team here at the Met Opera Guild. As many of you know, the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, and to do this, we draw our content from a variety of different classes and lectures that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City, as well as our archive of talking about opera programming. Today's episode once again features a talking about opera excerpt, this time led by Bridget Paolucci. At the time this recording was made, Bridget was a frequent lecturer at the Met Opera Guild, as well as New York City Opera, and regularly appeared on the Met's radio broadcasts. The opera we are focusing on today is one of my personal favorites, Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro. I remember the first time I saw this opera from start to finish with no breaks. I was watching a DVD of a Glyndebourne production featuring Renee Fleming as the Countess and Gerald Finley as the Count. And I still remember the incredible impact the final scene had on me the first time I saw it. Tears were just streaming down my face during that forgiveness scene, and I thought it was the most beautiful music I had ever heard. That scene still brings me to tears every time I hear it, and this opera is certainly a forever favorite of mine. As I mentioned last week, I saw it on stage at the Met just a few weeks ago, and it was brilliantly sung with an amazing cast. There are several performances left, I checked the calendar, so if you are in the New York City area, definitely try to catch this on stage if you can. There is so much to dig into with this opera. It has such a rich history in terms of source material, the historical moment that it was written in, layers of musical meaning and complexity, and geniusly constructed comedic scenes. So without any further delay, I'm going to cut myself off and turn things over to Bridget Paolucci. This is Talking About Opera, Mozart's La Nozze di Figaro. On May 7, 1783, Mozart wrote to his father from Vienna, telling him about the popularity there of Italian opera buffa, Italian comic opera. In that same letter, he says that he has looked through at least a hundred librettos and not found a satisfactory one. However, he writes, Our poet here now is a certain Abbe da Ponte. He has an enormous amount to do in revising pieces for the theater. He has promised after that to write a new libretto for me. But who knows whether he will be able to keep his word, or will want to. But indeed, I would dearly love to show what I can do in an Italian opera. When Mozart wrote the letter I've just quoted, he was 27 years old. Italian opera was the rage in Vienna. In fact, the emperor, Joseph II, had just established a new Italian opera company there. 
Mozart's successful German Singspiel, Die Entführung aus dem Serai, the abduction from the Seraglio, which premiered there the year before, had confirmed his reputation as an important composer of opera. In December of that year, he was invited to write an opera buffa for presentation in Vienna. Mozart began work on a farce entitled Loca del Cairo, The Cairo Goose. The text was feeble, and the quality of the music not up to the standard established by Entführung. Mozart abandoned the project, and the next year worked on a comic opera entitled Lo Sposo Deluso, The Deluded Bridegroom, based on a typical Commedia dell'arte plot with stock characters. Mozart completed the overture, two arias, and two ensembles of exceptional beauty. Then he set aside the project for unknown reasons. Some writers speculate that Mozart did this because the opera had not been commissioned by the court opera company. Others, that he had not yet found the proper subject for his highly developed musical skills. In any case, Mozart certainly wasn't idle in the period between Entführung and Nozze di Figaro. In addition to the two unfinished operas, he wrote concert arias, piano concertos, sonatas, and quartets, all forms he had long since mastered. Early in the summer of 1785, Mozart read a play entitled La Folle Journée ou le Mariage de Figaro, The Crazy Day or the Marriage of Figaro, by the French writer Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais. It was the second of two Beaumarchais plays based on the same set of characters. Le Barbier de Seville, or The Barber of Seville, as I'll refer to it from now on, which premiered in 1775, and its sequel, Le Mariage de Figaro, which premiered nine years later. The sequel created great controversy throughout Europe because it was a vehement attack on the aristocracy. By the way, in order to make a distinction among the play, the opera, and the title character, I'll use Nozze when speaking about the opera, Mariage for the play, and Figaro when I'm referring to the character. In 1782, the Italian composer Giovanni Paisiello wrote an opera based on the Barber of Seville. It was very popular, and Mozart knew that audiences were enthusiastic about it. According to William Mann, author of The Operas of Mozart, when the composer read Beaumarchais's Mariage, he found, in Mann's words, the characters, situations, inflammatory ideals which exactly matched his operatic longings. Paisiello's Barbieri di Siviglia had been applauded everywhere. Le Mariage de Figaro promised even more. It was banned as a play, but much read and discussed everywhere. The success of Paisiello's Barbieri and the gossip about Le Mariage would ensure good attendance. In writing Nozze, Mozart found both a subject and a collaborator worthy of his genius. That collaborator was Lorenzo da Ponte, a writer whose wit, elegance of expression, and understanding of the human condition matched those of the composer. Da Ponte was born near Venice in 1749, the son of Jewish parents. His name was Emanuele Conegliano. His mother died when he was young, and ten years later, when his father married a Christian woman, he and his three sons were baptized by the local bishop. In keeping with the custom of the time, Emanuele, then 14 years old, was given the bishop's name, Lorenzo da Ponte. Young Lorenzo studied for the priesthood, but his numerous romantic entanglements made this vocation unsuitable, to say the least. Da Ponte was also involved in political controversy and subsequently threatened with banishment from Venice. He escaped to Austria, where, at the recommendation of composer Antonio Salieri, Da Ponte became court poet. As Mozart's letter implies, Da Ponte was greatly admired and sought after in the Viennese court, 
the Mozart-Daponte collaboration began with Nozze, and the rest is opera history. Together they wrote not only Nozze, which premiered in 1786, but also Don Giovanni and Così fan tutte, all of them masterpieces. After the Mozart years, da Ponte resigned from his post in the Viennese court and eventually settled in New York. There, in the 1820s, he became the first professor of Italian literature at Columbia University. He died in New York in 1838 at the age of 89. It was Mozart who suggested to da Ponte that they use mariage as the subject for a libretto. As plays, mariage and the Barber of Seville are very different. Barber is stocked with Commedia dell'arte characters. Therefore, it was a good subject for Paisiello, who wrote in a light, graceful style. And it would also prove to be an ideal subject for Rossini's bracing, brilliant style 30 years later. Mariage, on the other hand, is a topical play, a comedy with realistic characters who have serious concerns, a tirade against social privilege that reflects the discontent in France in the years just prior to the Revolution. In fact, Napoleon called the play The Revolution Already in Action. As I mentioned, performances of the play were forbidden in Austria, although Joseph II, who considered himself an enlightened ruler, did allow the text to be published. It took all of de Ponte's considerable diplomacy and a sample of the music that Mozart was writing for Nozze to persuade the emperor to permit the play to be used as the subject for an opera. In adapting mariage to libretto form, da Ponte had to blunt the revolutionary edge of the play. He deleted political references, compressed the play, made it deeper and broader in scope. Da Ponte placed greater emphasis on human relationships than on politics, although the political implications were there in the text and would be affirmed by Mozart's music. Da Ponte called Nozze a commedia per musica, a comedy for or through music, rather than an opera buffa. Nozze is not really an opera buffa. In fact, in the preface to the first edition of the libretto, Da Ponte states that he and Mozart hope to have realized our special desire to render the emotional content imaginatively and to present a new kind of entertainment to an audience of such refined taste and sure artistic judgment. Nozze was precisely that, a new kind of entertainment, a new level of operatic experience. It's a comedy with substance, a comedy that balances playfulness and seriousness, a comedy that is both witty and tender. The sheer variety and richness of the music was new to comic opera, as was the masterly use of the orchestra. Above all, the characters in Nozze are not the stock figures of opera buffa. They have greater substance and complexity than any characters in comic opera before this, greater individuality than perhaps any character previously depicted on the operatic stage. True, the characters in Mariage are fascinating, and de Ponte's verses give those characters greater subtlety than in the play. But it is Mozart's music that gives them psychological depth. The characters Mozart creates through music are genuine human beings with personalities and passions and problems, human beings aching for love. Nozze is basically a study of the many facets of love, the intricacies of love, the interdependence of those in love, love on a large scale, even the counterpart of love, forgiveness, all this finding expression in music. Mozart never wallows in sentimentality. He seems to understand all kinds of human beings and to judge none of them. 
He expresses their thoughts and emotions in music that is totally appropriate to the characters and to the drama. Yet that music is glorious in and of itself, apart from the text. Mozart's melodies are among the great joys of Nozze, along with the characters and the ensembles. The Ponte and Mozart assume that the members of the audience knew certain plot details from the Barber of Seville that are essential for an understanding of Nozze. In Barber, Figaro, the barber of the title, has helped Count Almaviva win the young girl Rosina from Dr. Bartolo. Bartolo was not only her guardian, but had also planned to marry her himself. Between the two plays, the Count has taken on Figaro as his valet and steward of the castle. Figaro has fallen in love with Susanna, the personal maid to Rosina, who is now the Countess. The Count has recently renounced the droit du seigneur, the right of an aristocrat to make love to his servant's bride on her wedding night. But the impending marriage of Susanna to Figaro has given him second thoughts about his decision. Le Nozze di Figaro is set in 18th century Seville, in and around the castle of Count Almaviva. It takes place on Figaro and Susanna's wedding day, the crazy day referred to in the full title of the play. The overture to Nozze, the last music Mozart wrote for this opera, creates the atmosphere of intrigue that permeates the opera, without quoting any of its actual music. It opens with soft, urgent unison strings and two bassoons playing presto very fast, seeming to whisper about the schemes being concocted in the Count's castle. Then the orchestra bursts into a rollicking fortissimo that sounds like laughter, then back again to the whisper of intrigue. In this recording, Carlo Maria Giulini conducts the Philharmonia Orchestra. The setting for Act I is the room that the Count has given to Figaro and Susanna as their new living quarters. Figaro is measuring the space for their bed. Susanna, who doesn't yet realize that this room is to be theirs, is looking in the mirror as she tries on the wedding headpiece she has made for herself. Figaro measures the space. Cinque, dieci, venti, trenta, five, ten, twenty, thirty. The vocal line also measures the space, extending its reach as the numbers grow higher. It starts with cinque, five. The second word, dieci, starts higher, then venti, even higher. The vocal line is focused on the business of measuring. Apparently, Figaro is a man who concentrates on one thing at a time. Susanna wants him to look at her wedding headpiece. Her melody is supple, reflecting a graceful, charming young woman. Figaro will not be distracted from what he's doing. And as I'll point out to you, Susanna's vocal line becomes insistent. Finally, Figaro looks, and to her tune, he tells her how lovely her headpiece looks. Sembra fatto in ver per te. It seems to have been made just for you, he says, knowing full well that she made it for herself. We listen now to the opening of the Figaro-Susanna duet, a duet that describes these characters, their activities, and their trusting, easygoing relationship. Giuseppe Tadei sings Figaro, Anamofo, Susanna. Quaranta-tre, 
Susanne insists that Figaro look at her. Figaro tells Susanna that the Count has provided them with a room, conveniently located between the Count's bedroom and that of the Countess. Susanna objects, but won't say why. Figaro insists there could be no better quarters for them. This conversation takes place in the form of a recitative. Like all opera of this period, Nozze is based on musical numbers, arias, duets, trios, ensembles, choruses, separated by recitative, which is usually accompanied by harpsichord. Recitative is the storytelling element in opera in which the vocal line approximates the inflections of speech, and in Mozart's hands, it's particularly expressive. The recitative between Figaro and Susanna introduces their second duet. Although it involves the same two characters as the first duet, the mood is very different. Figaro tells Susanna that when the Count wants him, all he has to do is ring, and when the Countess wants Susanna, she just does the same. But Susanna reveals that the Count has been using Don Basilio, the music teacher and castle gossip, to bring her messages of infatuation. The Count has offered Susanna a dowry as a bribe so that she might grant him the droit de seigneur. And so begins the convoluted story of this crazy day. A bell is heard. The Countess is calling for Susanna. Susanna exits, leaving Figaro alone to mull over her news. In Se Vuol Ballare, the first of Figaro's three great arias, the servant expresses his determination to outwit his master. In the recitative preceding the aria, Figaro addresses his comments to the Count, who of course isn't there. So we'll go to London with you as ambassador, me as courier, and Susanna as secret ambassadress, says Figaro, referring to the fact that the Count has recently been appointed Spanish ambassador to the English court. Never, never, he continues, Figaro has spoken. In Mozart's time, it was not conventional for comic characters, particularly those of the servant class, to be as serious as noble ones. And here, Figaro is deadly serious. The slow tempo in this part of the recitative and the very intensity of the vocal line reflect the depth of his anger. He is not the usual two-dimensional opera buffa servant character audiences were used to, but a complex person capable of love, indignation, cunning, and fury, a human being on a par with other human beings, not a lower-class clown. The recitative is direct, angry, full of determination. The aria is cunning. Se vuol ballare, signor Contino, sings Figaro. If you want to dance, Lord Count, il chitarino le suonerò. I'll play the guitar. In Italian, the word for Count is Conte, but Figaro says Contino. Ino is the diminutive ending of a word. So Figaro is saying Little Count. And when he mentions the guitar, it's not la chitarra, it's il chitarino, the little guitar. Again, the diminutive. Figaro trivializes everything about the Count. The music Mozart wrote for the aria is not the music of a commoner. The refined melody, the rhythm, and the form of Sevol Ballare resemble an aristocratic minuet. In other words, Figaro is assuming the Count's musical milieu in the very sound and structure of the music he sings. The aria seems harmless enough on the surface, 
but in reality, it conveys the social message of Beaumarchais' play under the guise of wit and charm. Listen to the end of Figaro's recitative and then the beginning of his aria, Se vuol ballare. Figaro leaves, and Dr. Bartolo, the gentleman who used to be Rosina's guardian and would-be husband, enters with his former housekeeper, Marcellina. She wants his help with a contract she made with Figaro. She gave Figaro a loan with the understanding that he would marry her if he couldn't repay it. Since he has not paid her, she demands that he marry her. Bartolo is eager to thwart Figaro's plans for marriage, because he's still chafing from the humiliation he suffered in the Barber of Seville. He finds Marcellina's contract a vehicle for his own retaliation. He sings an aria of revenge, La Vendetta. The vocal line of this typical buffo aria is indignant. The orchestra is pompous as the character. Ivo Vinco sings Dr. Bartolo. La Vendetta oh, La Vendetta Bartolo leaves and Susanna returns. After a snide little duet in which Susanna teases Marcellina about her age, Marcellina goes off in a huff. Then in comes Cherubino, a young nobleman serving as a page in the castle, a role written for mezzo-soprano. Cherubino is the personification of adolescence. He confuses puberty with love. When Mariage was first performed, Beaumarchais wrote notes for the actors on how to perform various roles. The playwright said this about Cherubino. The basis of his character is an undefined and restless desire. He is entering adolescence all unheeding and with no understanding of what is happening to him, and he throws himself eagerly into everything that comes along. Cherubino tells Susanna that the Count is angry with him because he caught him alone with Barbarina, the pretty young daughter of Antonio the gardener. Antonio, by the way, is Susanna's uncle. The Count ordered Cherubino to leave the castle, and Cherubino says that if the Countess doesn't intervene on his behalf, he'll have to go. He tells Susanna that he can't bear not seeing her again. He also says that he envies her because she dresses and undresses the Countess. Obviously, Cherubino is attracted to every female he sees. He snatches a ribbon belonging to the Countess from Susanna's hands. When she asks whether or not he's gone mad, he sings non so più, an aria that embodies adolescent love. 
Da Ponte captures the impudence, the pubescent agony of Cherubino in the very sound of the words, in the short phrases he sings. Non so più cosa son, cosa faccio, or di fuoco, ora sono di ghiaccio. I don't know who I am, what I'm doing. One minute I'm fire, then I'm ice. Every woman makes me blush, every woman makes my heart beat faster. There's nothing poetic or elegant about the words, just eager and young. Cherubino's vocal line is impetuous, shaped as though he's blurting out the words rather than singing them. Yet it's also sensual, with the words ogni donna, every woman, sounding like a quick caress. The orchestra underlines that sensuality. For instance, Cherubino tells Susanna that he can't explain a desire he has, un desio, un desio, and when he repeats those words, two clarinets, instruments with a sensual sound, sigh along with Cherubino, doing the explaining for him. There's no orchestral introduction, just one measure of strings, restless strings. Fiorenza Cosotto sings the role of Cherubino. The Count's voice is heard outside the door, and Cherubino quickly hides behind a chair. The Count enters and begins to woo Susanna, when suddenly the music teacher Basilio arrives. As the Count runs to hide behind the chair, Cherubino scrambles into the chair, and Susanna covers him. Depending on the production, the cover might be a dress or some sort of large cloth. Basilio gossips about Cherubino, saying that the page has written a love song, implying it might be for the countess. This prompts the count to emerge from hiding. The ensuing trio is the first of many glorious ensembles in Nozze, ensembles that, along with the melodies and the characters, make this opera the masterpiece it is. Ensembles were typical of the opera buffa form, but characterization within those ensembles was rare. In Mozart's ensembles, the characters always retain their highly individual musical profiles. The trio begins immediately after the count emerges from hiding. Each character is defined in his or her opening phrase. What do I hear, asks the count, and the dotted rhythms and brusque orchestral accompaniment reveal a man of immense pride and a hot temper. Basilio answers in little, unctuous, obsequious, descending phrases of four notes each. Susanna is highly agitated, and so are the breathless phrases she sings, and yet they're supple and feminine, as is all her music. We begin with the Count, barely able to contain himself as he asks, Cosa sento? What do I hear? Eberhard Vector is the Count, Renato Ercolani, Basilio. <laughs> Scacciate il seno un cor, pasta la pesca, pesca un cor. 
As the trio continues, the Count tells Basilio and Susanna that he found Cherubino alone with Barbarina. When he describes how he pulled a tablecloth off a table at Barbarina's and uncovered the young page, he sings the description to a descending figure that echoes what Basilio sang earlier. As the Count sings, he moves the chair cover to illustrate what happened at Barbarina's. And lo and behold, there's Cherubino again. In a moment of superb musical wit, the descending melody reverses itself and moves upward. In other words, it mirrors what the Count has just been describing, as the whole thing happens all over again. He uncovers Cherubino. By the way, during the trio, Basilio says, Così fan tutte, that's what all women do, a phrase that was to become the name of the third Mozart da Ponte opera. Figaro enters. He has brought along some villagers to praise the Count for abolishing the droit du Seigneur. Figaro asks him to perform the wedding ceremony then and there. In order to delay, the Count insists that he needs time to organize festivities for Figaro and Susanna. And in an aside, the Count wonders where Marcellina is. He orders Cherubino to join his regiment immediately, thus getting rid of the young page, who not only has a crush on his wife, but also has overheard him trying to woo Susanna. As the Count leaves with Basilio, Figaro whispers to Cherubino that he must speak to him before he leaves for the army. Then he mocks the page in his next aria, Non più andrai, saying that Cherubino will now exchange amorous pursuits for the military life. You won't be going around disturbing the pretty ones night and day anymore, says Figaro to Cherubino, calling him a farfallone amoroso, a big amorous butterfly, an allusion to Cupid. There are also allusions to Narcissus and Adonis in this aria. But high-flown and sarcastic as the language is, the melody is down to earth, popular in feeling, a true reflection of Figaro's personality and of his class. The aria ends with a mock military passage as Figaro teases Cherubino about military glory, la gloria militar, bringing Act I to a close. Cherubino alla vittoria, alla gloria militar, Cherubino alla vittoria, alla gloria militar, alla gloria militar. Alla gloria militar. 
When this aria was performed at the first full rehearsal of Nozze, the response was overwhelming. An account of that event was written by the tenor who played both Basilio and Don Curcio at the world premiere, a 23-year-old Irish singer, Michael Kelly, known in Italian opera circles as Michele O'Kelly. In his reminiscences, he recalled the reaction to Figaro's aria at that rehearsal. The effect was electricity itself, for the whole of the performers on the stage and those in the orchestra, as if actuated by one feeling of delight, vociferated, Bravo, bravo, maestro, viva, viva, grande Mozart. Those in the orchestra, I thought, would never have ceased applauding by beating the bows of their violins against the music desks. The little man acknowledged by repeated obeisances his thanks for the distinguished mark of enthusiastic applause bestowed upon him. Kelly goes on to say that the same meed of approbation was given to the finale of the next act. Act two takes place later in the day in the boudoir of the Countess. There are three doors to the room, one to her dressing room, another to Figaro and Susanna's room, and the third to the castle corridor. There's also a large window overlooking the garden. In the play, the Countess had entered late in Act One. By opening Act Two of Nozze with her, the Ponte gives her character greater significance. In the play, the character of the Countess tends to be bland, occasionally verging on the supercilious. In describing this character, Beaumarchais wrote, Torn between two conflicting emotions, she should display only a restrained tenderness and a very moderate degree of resentment. Above all, nothing which might impair her amiable and virtuous character in the eyes of the audience. In the opera, the Countess becomes a more complex individual, a more truly human character. Act two opens with her aria, Porgi Amor, an aria in which she asks love itself to console her, an aria about disillusioned love. Apparently, Susanna, wanting the support of the Countess, has already told her of the Count's advances. The Countess pines for the Count as he once was. She was 15 years old when she married him, and she's about 19 now, young, disappointed, but still very much a Countess, elements that Mozart captures in this first musical portrait of her. Her words are flowery, her thoughts conventionally exaggerated as she asks that at the very least love permit her to die. Hardly a realistic attitude. And yet, her limpid vocal line makes the pain of disillusioned love very real. Elizabeth Schwarzkopf is the Countess. Countess asks Susanna, then he tried to seduce you? Susanna answers that his lordship wouldn't bother with such niceties for a woman of her class. Figaro enters with the news that the Count has threatened to force him to marry Marcellina, but Figaro has devised a plot. He'll write an anonymous note to the Count, telling him that his wife has arranged a rendezvous with someone that evening. Enraged by this, the Count will temporarily neglect his own plot to prevent Susanna's marriage. That delay will help the lovers to gain time. 
Then Susanna will let the Count know she wants to meet him in the garden that evening. But it will be Cherubino, dressed as Susanna, who will keep the appointment. The Countess will discover them together, and she'll then be in a position to insist that the Figaro-Susanna wedding go through. Figaro goes off to write the letter and sends Cherubino to the women to be fitted with one of Susanna's dresses. When Cherubino arrives, he sings the love song he has written for the Countess, Voi che sapete, an expression of love as formal courtship. The words are based on lines from Dante's Vita Nuova, in which the poet wrote, You who know love, you women, see if that's in my heart. It's different from any other aria in Nozze. It's truly a song within the opera. The orchestra with its pizzicato strings sounds like a guitar, and the giddy figures in the flute and oboe betray Cherubino's excitement as he serenades the countess. When Cherubino removes his cloak, the Countess asks him about a document he's carrying. It's his commission as an officer in the Count's regiment, and the Countess notices that the Count, in his hurry to issue it, forgot to put his seal on it. Susanna locks the door to the corridor so the three of them will have privacy. As Cherubino tries on some of Susanna's clothes, she sings a charming little aria to him, Venite inginocchiatevi, come kneel down here. The Countess notices that Cherubino has scratched his arm and has bandaged it with her ribbon. She sends Susanna off to her room to get another ribbon, leaving the Countess alone with the partially dressed Cherubino. There's a knock at the door. It's the Count. Panicked, the Countess pushes Cherubino into her dressing room, throws his clothes in after him, and locks the dressing room door before admitting the Count. He barges in, asking why she locked the door to the boudoir, and demanding to know who was with her. The countess says it was Susanna, who has now gone to her own room. The count shows her the anonymous letter he has just received. A loud noise is heard from the dressing room. Obviously, it's the clumsy Cherubino. The countess says it must be Susanna. The count orders her out of the dressing room. The countess orders her to stay put. Meanwhile, unnoticed by either one, Susanna has returned to the room and hidden. The Count announces he's going off to get a tool to pry open the dressing room door. He takes the Countess with him and locks the door to the boudoir from the outside. In a charming duet, Susanna tells Cherubino to come out of the dressing room immediately. He's in his own clothes now, and she tells him that he must somehow get out of the room. He escapes by leaping out the window into the garden below, and Susanna goes into the dressing room. Their duet is breathless, capturing in music the air of mischief and their sense of panic as Susanna says, Aprite, presto, aprite, open the door, hurry, open up. Aprite, presto, aprite, aprite, Susanna. 
six duets in Nozze, apart from those in the finales, and Susanna participates in all of them. She is the moving force in this opera. Beaumarchais describes Susanna as resourceful, intelligent, and lively. In the opera, her character unfolds gradually with each appearance she makes. She's charming and persuasive in the first duet with Figaro, shrewd in the second one, self-assured in her confrontation with Marcellina, quick-thinking in the duet with Cherubino. She is consistently graceful, lively, straightforward, and clever, both with members of her own class and with the nobility. The Count and Countess return, launching the finale of Act Two, one of Mozart's greatest achievements, in fact, one of the greatest achievements in all opera. The finale is monumental in structure, lasting about 20 minutes. It consists of eight segments of differing moods and tempi, and yet it's cohesive and builds steadily to a frenzied climax. It begins with a duet for the Count and Countess, in which he demands that Cherubino exit from the dressing room, and it ends with a septet for the Count, Countess, Figaro, Susanna, Marcellina, Basilio, and Bartolo. In the meantime, Antonio the gardener has also come and gone and participated in the finale. Through it all, each character retains his or her musical individuality and the relationships between the characters are clearly defined in the music. The exhilarating pace of the finale is due not only to the music, but also to the skillfully constructed libretto. In the Pontes text, all of the mood changes and groupings of the various characters are precipitated by lies or schemes. When the Count and Countess return to her boudoir, armed with tools to pry open the dressing room door, she confesses that Cherubino is in there. The Count strides to the door and bellows, Eschior my garzon malnato, come out, you scoundrel. The tempo of the duet between himself and the Countess is fast, allegro. The Count's vocal line is arrogant, with the dotted rhythms typical of his lordship. Woodwind chords played loudly on each strong beat and immediately becoming soft in a forte piano, literally loud soft, reinforce his indignation. The countess pleads with him to calm down. Her vocal line is frantic, moving up and down the staff in gasping phrases, her anxiety accentuated by a flurry of eighth notes in the orchestra. Here now is the duet, the opening of the great Act Two finale. <laughs> As the Count threatens to kill Cherubino, the duet is reduced to a series of blunt exchanges between the outraged Count and the desperate Countess. Mora, mora, let him die, let him die, he says again and again. The Countess is hysterical, her vocal line highly agitated. Then the dressing room door opens, and out comes Susanna. 
the orchestra almost comes to a complete halt, playing just two tense descending phrases as the Count and Countess, both incredulous, can only say, Susanna? The tempo slows down to molto andante, and the orchestral music resembles a minuet. Like Figaro before her in Sevol Ballare, Susanna is taking on the musical manner of the aristocracy. She clearly has the upper hand, and she's relishing every moment of it. You seem so bewildered, she says gracefully, adding with gentle sarcasm, You're going to kill the page, il paggio uccidete. As the Count and Countess try to figure out what has happened, the violins and the bassoons slither downward, and above the musings of the noble couple, Susanna sings a giddy little tune. The triplets in her vocal line express her amusement as she says to herself that they haven't the slightest idea what has happened. We resume listening to the duet between the Count and Countess just before he threatens to kill Cherubino. Susanna emerges from the dressing room. Susanna! The tempo picks up in the next segment, becoming an allegro when the Count goes to search the dressing room, leaving the Countess and Susanna momentarily alone. I'm breathless, says the Countess, and the music is also breathless. In contrast, Susanna's vocal line exudes triumph as she tells her not to worry. The Count returns and apologizes. He shows the two women the letter he received, and they tell him about the plot. Figaro enters, precipitating an abrupt change of mood as a quartet begins. The music in 3-8 time is vigorous, rustic. By the way, Figaro's entrance music was written by Mozart at age nine for his Symphony No. 3 in B-flat. Everything is ready for the wedding, announces Figaro. The band is playing. The people are ready and waiting. 
The rustic tune comes to a halt momentarily as the Count tries to take control of the situation. Pian piano men fretta. Slow down, don't rush, he says. Again, a fragment of that vigorous rustic tune as Figaro tells him the crowd is waiting. And again, the Count takes control, his vocal line gradually descending as he deflates Figaro's exuberance. Now listen to Figaro's entrance, accompanied by the tune written by the young Mozart. Signore di fuori son già i suonatori, le trombe sentite, i pimperi udite, fraccanti, fraffallite, vostri passalli, corriamo, vogliamo le nozze a compir, corriamo, vogliamo le nozze a compir. La turba m'aspetta, pia piano mi fretta, un doppio togliete, mi fria di partir, mi fria di partir. The tempo slows down to an andante as the Count asks Figaro if he knows who wrote the letter, a letter that, as far as the Count is concerned, is no longer anonymous. The tune the Count sings when he tries to ensnare his valet into trusting him has a man-to-man -man ring about it. It's remarkable in that it's less than aristocratic, yet more than common. Figaro denies ever having seen the letter, even when the two women try to prod him into admitting it's his. As this segment of the finale continues, the Count tells Figaro that his face is lying. In a haunting melody, Figaro answers, My face might lie, but I don't. Perhaps it seems a strange moment for such glorious music, but Figaro is trying to entice the Count into believing him, and that melody is indeed enticing. The two women join Figaro in a passage of great beauty that is slightly tinged with dissonance, reflecting the duplicity of all involved. Then the Count and Figaro challenge one another musically. What's your answer, says the Count, his vocal line swooping downward. I know nothing, answers Figaro, his vocal line leaping upward. The two women become frantic, and their vocal lines rise as they sing together in harmony. Figaro then addresses the Count man to man, using the same tune the Count used in the previous excerpt when he tried to get Figaro to admit he wrote the note. As long as we're talking, Count, says Figaro, how about the wedding? The melody I mentioned earlier resumes as the Countess and Susanna join Figaro in asking that the wedding take place. This time, under that melody, you'll hear the Count muttering, Marcellina, Marcellina. He hopes she'll arrive soon. There's an abrupt change as Antonio the gardener rushes in with a pot of crushed flowers. The tempo speeds up to an allegro molto and the key changes. Antonio reports that a man jumped out of the window of the boudoir and damaged the carnations below. His arrival introduces an element of broad humor, even as it compounds the tension. We resume listening as Figaro tells the Count that his face might lie, but he, Figaro, doesn't. In this excerpt, Piero Capuccilli is Antonio. Mente il cepio 
The plot becomes even more convoluted as Figaro says that he's the one who jumped from the window. When he adds that in fact he hurt his foot in the process, the next segment of the finale begins. The tempo slows down to an andante and a stealthy staccato figure is heard in the strings. That figure will continue throughout this entire section, changing pitch occasionally, persistently underlining the ever-complicated web that Figaro is weaving. Antonio gives him the document he found on the ground, a document that fell from the pocket of the man who jumped. The Count snatches it, and Antonio leaves. When the Count challenges Figaro to identify the papers, the women prompt him, whispering that it's Cherubino's army commission and that it lacks the Count's seal. And all the while, that stealthy figure lurks in the orchestra. Just then, Marcellina, Basilio, and Bartolo burst into the room, launching the last segment of the finale. The stealthy figure stops, and the tempo speeds up to an allegro assai. We'll sample the beginning of this segment. In this excerpt, Doragata is Marcellina. Marcellina demands that her contract with Figaro be carried out. Not that she loves Figaro. Marcellina just wants to marry somebody, anybody. The Count promises to investigate the matter, and the act ends prestissimo, very, very fast. Figaro, Susanna, and the Countess are in a state of utter frustration, while Marcellina, Bartolo, Basilio, and the Count are already claiming victory. The orchestra, complete with trumpets and timpani, whips this extraordinary finale to a close. Capital, 
to this point in Nozze, the structure of the libretto closely parallels that of Beaumarchais' play. For the third act of the opera, however, the Ponte combined acts three and four of the play, deleting two scenes that undoubtedly would have been forbidden by the emperor. The first is the scene between Figaro and the Count, in which the Count questions his valet and then orders him to arrange the room for his own breach of promise trial. This scene is a verbal duel between master and servant. The master tries to manipulate, the servant responds with barbed comments against the ruling class. The second scene deleted by the Ponte is the trial scene, which mocks the court system. These scenes, plus Figaro's famous monologue in the last act, Act V of Mariage, were the political heart of the play. The omission of these scenes, particularly of the monologue, did not fool the audience of Mozart's day. They knew the play, if only by reputation. And they knew the playwright. Beaumarchais had been a merchant, a financier, a secret agent, a public figure who became a popular hero when he challenged the French judicial system in a case involving a member of the aristocracy. Perhaps the audience did not know, however, that the Ponte was exiled from Venice for his political writings, although his notorious romantic escapades might also have been a factor. In his memoirs, he stated that he had written some speeches for a scholastic entertainment for the Venetian Senate, speeches, he claimed, to supply practice for a certain number of my pupils in the art of declamation. One of those speeches began, Man by nature free becomes a slave through laws. Another, I embrace in one glance the king on his throne and the ragged beggar on the street. Perhaps they were exercises in declamation, as de Ponte claimed, but it's not difficult to understand why they were considered subversive. Both de Ponte and Mozart lived outside the norm. Volkmar Braun-Behrens, author of Mozart in Vienna, 1781-1791, writes, Da Ponte was one of those exceptional people with whom Mozart preferred to associate, outsiders, nonconformists, those under threat or pursued by fate, whose place in society was not already established at birth. Mozart understood all too well the causes of the impending French Revolution. He had associated with aristocrats from his early years, when he was a plaything at court. Although at this point in his life he was generally admired by the society of Joseph II's Vienna, he always knew that European aristocrats never had accepted him as an equal, and never would. Da Ponte and Mozart were not out to cause a revolution, however. Their Nozze is timeless rather than topical. Although the opera certainly contains barbs against the upper classes, it's not a condemnation of a particular contemporary social structure but rather a comment on human beings as they live and love within that structure and are necessarily affected by it. Beaumarchais preached the need to revolt, to fight for equality. Mozart achieves that equality musically, lifting all human beings to a higher plane, showing the pain in all persons and the need on all social levels for love and compassion and forgiveness. These concepts would become the basis for Mozart's last great opera, The Magic Flute, written five years after Nozze in 1791, the year of Mozart's death. In both the opera and the play, Act Three opens with a short solo scene for the Count, a recitative in Nozze. 
in which he tries to figure out precisely what happened earlier that day and what role the countess had in all this. This recitative is followed by a scene between him and Susanna. Apparently, Susanna and the countess have concocted a new plot, one that does not involve Cherubino. Susanna goes to the count and persuades him that she wants to meet him that evening. In their duet, the count seems genuinely attracted to Susanna, at least for the moment. Crudel, perché finora farmi languir così? You cruel woman, why have you let me languish like this? he asks. His vocal line in a minor key is eager, restless. Susanna's vocal line in a major key is cool, calm, and gracious. The music becomes increasingly sensual, explicit really, as the Count asks, Verrai, non mancherai, you'll come, you won't fail me. After the duet, Susanna leaves and whispers to Figaro that she has won the court case. The Count overhears her and is indignant that the others are trying to trick him again. The recitative to his ensuing aria rings with fury, fury made fierce by trumpets and the timpani and by the pompous rhythms that accompany it. This is the first of four recitatives in Nozze accompanied by the full orchestra. The Count's aria expresses his fury at thinking that his servant Figaro will have Susanna. Vedrò mentrio sospiro, while I sigh, will I see a servant of mine so happy? The tempo is marked allegro maestoso. The orchestral introduction plunges downward violently. The aria begins as a series of declamatory phrases, rough, fragmented, disconnected, with the dotted rhythms that are the essence of the Count's musical profile. When he says that Susanna aroused affection in him, there's a touch of pathos in the woodwinds. Then the vocal line becomes a strong, grandiose melody, as though the Count has finally pulled himself together and can express himself in coherent melody. This is the feudal lord who thought himself enlightened, the master who was tricked into seducing a servant when it might have been his so-called right to have her. His aria is not a caricature, it's the portrait of a hurt, enraged human being, a powerful man rendered helpless. Mozart does not judge him. He portrays him directly, forcefully, humanly.
the ensuing trial scene ends when Figaro's true identity is discovered. The Ponte substituted a witty recognition scene for the trial, and Mozart wrote an enchanting sextet for that scene. Tenor Michael Kelly claimed that the sextet was Mozart's favorite piece in the opera, a claim substantiated by Mozart's wife, Constanza. After the Count's aria, Marcellina, Bartolo, and Figaro enter with the notary Don Curzio, who declares that Figaro must either repay the loan or marry Marcellina. The Count agrees with Curzio, saying that his sentence is a just one. Figaro claims that by law he can't marry without parental consent, and he doesn't know who his parents are because he was kidnapped by gypsies as a baby. Marcellina asks whether or not he has a birthmark. Figaro does. He shows it to her, and Marcellina exclaims that he's her son, hers and Bartolo's. Figaro hugs his newfound parents. Susanna comes in at that moment, and seeing Figaro hug Marcellina, she slaps him. Then she learns the happy truth. We'll start listening to the sextet right after Susanna has slapped Figaro. In a warm and simple melody, Marcellina explains that she is Figaro's mother, the orchestra cavorts as Susanna asks, Sua madre? And Bartolo confirms, Sua madre. Sua madre? And the Count assures her, Sua madre. Then Figaro, in another warm and simple melody, says, E quello è mio padre, and that's my father. Incredulous, Susanna asks, Sua padre? And the orchestra cavorts again as the others confirm what Figaro has said. This stock situation comes straight out of the Commedia dell'arte tradition, but the characters and the music lift the sextet to a plane far above that of stock comedy. Bartolo suggests a double wedding, and Marcellina readily agrees. Everyone leaves. The countess enters alone, and the mood of the opera changes with her aria, Dove Sono. In the recitative accompanied by the orchestra, she wonders how the count reacted to Susanna's offer. The countess feels deeply humiliated. Her husband's infidelity and jealousy have forced her, in her words, to seek the help of a servant. 
Dove sono i bei momenti di dolcezza e di pace? Where are the beautiful moments of sweetness and peace, she asks. The words are personal, not high-flown as in Porgi Amor, in which we heard the rather pampered countess. Here the dignity of her person, a facet almost non-existent in the play, shines through. The melody expresses her yearning for love, and the oboe reinforces the plaintive quality of her lament. As the aria progresses, her vocal line becomes more distraught, but the aria ends brightly with hope for reconciliation with the Count. Now the opening of Dove Sono. Susanna enters, and she and the countess decide to write a note to the count, specifying where he and Susanna will meet. The countess dictates the letter to Susanna, a poetic letter, inviting the count to the garden that evening. The countess seals the letter with a pin that is to be returned by the count if he agrees to the tryst. The women will switch clothes for the garden meeting. Only they know about this plot. In the letter duet, the countess dictates the note, and then one oboe and one bassoon take over the melody as Susanna writes, echoing snatches of the melody as she goes along. It's a moment of repose in this drama of intrigue. Some peasant girls, including Barbarina, arrive with flowers for the countess. Among them is Cherubino, disguised as a girl. The count and Antonio arrive and discover he's there. The count threatens to punish him for not joining his regiment. But Barbarina reminds him that when he, the count, hugged and kissed her, he promised she could have whatever she wanted, and she wants to marry Cherubino. Villagers arrive for the double wedding of Susanna and Figaro and Marcellina and Bartolo, and the wedding march begins. The noble couple presents bridal veils to Marcellina and Susanna. Two young girls, later joined by the other villagers, sing a chorus about faithful lovers, ironically praising the Count for renouncing the droit de seigneur. The dance music begins, a fandango, the only Spanish touch in this opera set in Seville. During the dancing, Susanna slips the note to the Count. 
He reads it and pricks his finger on the pin that seals it. Figaro notices what's happening and comments to Susanna about the Count's foolishness. When Nozze was written, dancing and opera was forbidden in Vienna. In fact, a member of the court burned the two pages of da Ponte's manuscript that described the dance scene in Nozze. Da Ponte then conceived a plan that rivaled the intrigue in the opera. He invited the emperor to attend a rehearsal, a rare event in court circles. Then, da Ponte convinced Mozart to have the music stop when the dance was supposed to take place in the wedding scene. Susanna and the Count would pantomime the scene in which Susanna gives him the note, in total silence. The emperor came to the rehearsal, saw this scene, was appalled, and ordered the dance music reinstated, just as the Ponte had anticipated he would. The fandango was followed by a repeat of the villagers' chorus, bringing Act Three to a close. The words of the chorus reinforce the irony of praising this enlightened lord who has just been lured into a rendezvous with his newlywed servant. takes place that night in the castle garden. Barbarina enters, searching for the pin which the Count had given her to deliver to Susanna. She sings a plaintive little aria, L'ho perduta, me mischina, I've lost it, poor little me. Elisabetta Fusco is Barbarina. Figaro enters with Marcellina, and Barbarina tells them she's looking for the pin. Figaro thinks that Susanna is about to betray him. He leaves, and Marcellina decides that she had better warn Susanna. Marcellina sings an aria about animals living in pairs, an aria which is sometimes omitted in performance, as is the next aria sung by Basilio about the need to play the fool when confronted with danger. The two arias that follow, Figaro's Apriti un po' and Susanna's De Vieni, are masterly. Figaro has rounded up Bartolo, Basilio, and assorted peasants to help him. He tells them to hide until he signals for them, and then alone he addresses his aria to the men in the audience. This aria replaces Figaro's long monologue from Act V of the play a monologue that begins as a brief denunciation of women, but quickly becomes a scathing attack on the aristocracy. Nobility, fortune, rank, position, how proud they make a man feel, says Beaumarchais Figaro. What have you done to deserve such advantages? Put yourself to the trouble of being born, nothing more. Whereas I, lost among the obscure crowd, have had to deploy more knowledge, more calculation and skill merely to survive than has sufficed to rule all the provinces of Spain for a century. 
Although da Ponte had to delete the monologue, he still gave Figaro a solo scene at this point. The words of his recitative are more personal than those of the Beaumarchais Figaro, centering on the character's deep hurt and humiliation. The recitative is rife with fury, and it's fully accompanied by the orchestra. Recitatives with orchestral accompaniment, known as the recitativo strumentato, were traditionally reserved for characters of the upper classes. In fact, in previous operas, Mozart himself had observed this tradition. By using the recitativo strumentato here, Mozart is putting Figaro's emotions on the same level as the Count's, and the audience of his day understood that. In their respective arias, both servant and master feel they have been betrayed, and both react with blinding fury when humiliated. This parallel not only gives the opera artistic balance, but asserts the common humanity of the two main male characters. Figaro's aria, Aprite un po' quegli occhi, Open up your eyes, you rash and foolish men, is more cunning than the Count's, less fierce, but every bit as agitated and forceful. We'll hear the second half of the aria, in which Figaro again warns the men in the audience to open their eyes. He claims that women are witches who enchant men. Son streghe che incantano. That's in the middle voice. Then the voice drops to a lower pitch as he adds suggestively, Il resto non dico. I won't say what else. Then again there are sirens, and the voice drops, Il resto non dico. A pattern repeated when he goes on to describe women as flirts and comets. He grows more and more agitated, and the vocal line becomes a series of triplets rising in a frenzy. Then it slithers downward as he says once again, Il resto, il resto, nol dico. The horn sound. In Italian, the word corni, horns, also means horns on the head, the symbol of the cuckold. And these horns in nozze are known as the horns of cuckoldry. They sound softly at first, then loudly as the aria ends. Guardate queste femmine, guardate cosa sono, cosa sono, cosa sono. Sono streghe che incantano, il resto non lo dico. Sirene che cantano, il resto non lo dico. Cibette che allettano, il resto non lo dico. Comete che brillano, il resto non lo dico. Sono famose spinose, sono volti pezzone, sono forse felice, colombe, maligne, maestre di canni, amiche da panni che finto non metto l'amore, non sento, non sento un pietà, non sento un pietà, no, 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 il resto, il resto non lo dico, già ognuno, già ognuno lo sa, il resto, il resto non lo dico, e già ognuno, già ognuno lo sa, già ognuno lo sa, Figaro hides when the Countess and Susanna arrive, each dressed in the other's clothes, along with Marcellina. Susanna waits as the others leave the scene. She knows that Figaro is spying on her and sings an aria of sublime seduction gently teasing him because he thinks it's addressed to the Count, while expressing her desire for him. Her recitative is also accompanied. 
In the aria De Vieni Non Tardar, she tells her lover to come to her, not to delay. The melody is tender, poetic, and serene. The orchestral accompaniment, consisting of three solo woodwinds and pizzicato strings, shimmers. This exquisite aria depicts Susanna as lover, completing Mozart's portrait of her. Chaos reigns as the finale begins and everyone is caught up in a game of mistaken identities. Cherubino happens to come by and thinking that the Countess is Susanna, he flirts with her as the real Susanna and Figaro watch from different vantage points. The Count arrives, chases Cherubino away and starts to woo the disguised Countess. In a fit of jealousy, Figaro creates a commotion in order to separate the Count and the woman he thinks is Susanna. The Count and the disguised Countess disappear in opposite directions. Susanna emerges from hiding, and Figaro momentarily mistakes her for the Countess, but then recognizes her voice. In music of exaggerated formality, he pretends to court the Countess, eliciting yet another slap from Susanna. He tells her that he knew all along who she was, and the two of them make peace in a short, charming duet that reflects the stability of their love. The Count enters and finds Figaro with the disguised Susanna. She and Figaro pretend to be madly in love, and the Count calls for vengeance. Feigning the voice of the Countess, Susanna pleads for his pardon. The Count refuses. The real Countess appears and says, Perhaps I may obtain their pardon. Stunned, the Count kneels before his wife and humbly begs her forgiveness. In the play, the Countess laughs as she pardons the Count. The many plots and subplots are unraveled, everyone teases the Count, and the play ends with singing and dancing. The end of Nozze, however, is bathed in an aura of healing, of forgiveness. We'll resume listening as Susanna, dressed as the Countess, begs for the Count's pardon. Everyone else follows suit. The Count's answer, no, no, no. Then you'll hear the real Countess intercede in music of great dignity. Almeno per loro perdono otero. The violins scurry, expressing the dumbfounded agitation of the Count, Bartolo, Basilio, and Curzio, who mumble that they must be delirious or mad. There's a brief pause. In a sublime change of mood, the Count begs his wife's pardon. The Countess grants forgiveness in a radiant melody, a melody that seems to heal the pain caused by love's complications. The other characters repeat her melody and expand upon it. Mozart makes it clear that love can survive only in an atmosphere of forgiveness. Hooray! 
The Count and Countess are reconciled, but Mozart understood that life goes on imperfectly. As this healing music ends, there's a series of descending two-note phrases, hushed, uneasy, ambiguous. Who knows what the Count's future actions will be, or anyone else's for that matter. Then all the characters come together in a chorus proclaiming that only love can resolve this day of torment and folly as they hurry off to celebrate the marriage of Figaro and Susanna. We resume listening with those ambiguous two-note phrases. Le Nozze di Figaro ends in a burst of joy, and yet it always leaves me feeling sad, disturbed, perhaps just wiser, because of its sensitive exploration of love, because of its knowing look at people in all stations of life who seem destined never to understand one another, never to be fully reconciled. Nozze is a masterpiece, utterly serious and utterly witty, filled with glorious melodies and ensembles with a profound understanding of the human condition. Thank you so much for listening to episode 23 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you will take a moment to leave a comment or a review in iTunes or consider donating to the continuation of the podcast at metguild.org podcast. We have some exciting episodes coming down the pipeline with one of our upcoming episodes slotted to feature international opera lecturer and author of Opera Unveiled, Desiree Mays. Desiree is an active lecturer with the Santa Fe Opera Company and has been a longtime audience favorite in the Met Opera Guild programming. We also have a future episode in the works that will feature myself and possibly some special guests discussing Donizetti's Tudor Queen operas. I am still working on that one, so I won't reveal too much, but all this is to say that we have some good stuff coming up, so be sure to tune in next week for episode 24. That's all for today. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.